Thank you for joining me today. I have an important guest today to discuss something that is obviously very important, the things that aren't being discussed because of the gigantic focus on COVID-19, and rightly so, and things like the Great Reset and so on that are very important. But there's a lot going on that The Last American Vagabond specifically, and a lot of lot of outlets out there were very, very having a very strong focus on. And when COVID and the illusion around it began, it really clearly pulled a lot of focus away from things like foreign policy discussions that are still happening. You know, we've talked about Syria and the wheat and the oil and what's been going on there. But I wanted to bring on Vanessa Bealy today to discuss what she's seeing in these areas and the most important things that seem to be missed today because of the other focuses. So how are you today, Vanessa? It's always a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks for that. It's been a while, actually. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it's because we're both drowning under the number of um, things that are going on around the world. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. I actually thought about that the other day, which is why I reached out. I was like, you know, we haven't talked, talked about this in a while. Yeah. And what's funny is, you know, that I, I I consider, even though we've never technically met in person, I consider you a friend and I consider you somebody that I, I know more, I guess, than some of the other people that I have on the mm-hmm. show. And what's funny is I, you know, I keep, a, I try to keep a good eye on your work, but you realize after the while, you know, that we're, that I haven't had you on. It's almost because I feel like I am keeping track of your work and so on. You know, it's important to, to keep connected. And this is why I think things like Pirate Street Media and other, I, I was just talking about um, Alt Media United, which is a podcast version of that. These, try to bring people together more and more, not necessarily to, you know, make sure we're all doing the same work, but just we're stronger together today. And I think we're really beginning to see how important it is, yeah. even if we disagree on minor points or even important points that we recognize what, who the real culprit is you know, and whatever that means to you out there. But, you know, thank you for coming on because mm. we got to stay connected. Yeah, no, so, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So so let's uh, let's start today with I mean, how about this? Let's start wherever you think is most important. I mean, we could talk about any number of locations. I mean, obviously, Ukraine <laughs> is a big focus for me right now, and I've got a lot of stuff we can get into. But Syria is something that I think you've been pointing out a lot. Uh, you had a great thread the other day breaking down like really important things that people just don't realize, sounding very similar to places like Gaza right now with the limited electricity. And mm-hmm. which, by the way, you pointed out it's been that way for quite a while now. I remember interviews yeah. we've had years ago where your electricity and Internet were going down mid mid interviews. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's going on? Well, I mean, you know, I think you're right. The focus, I mean, I was quite shocked when I put out that thread on Twitter and published it at my Substack. the number of people that kind of responded to me. Wow, I didn't know all this was happening in Syria. I was like, dudes, this has been like 11 years um, of Syria living through a sanction-induced hell, basically. And that's important. Um, And yeah, in... in, Sanctions. Sorry. No, sorry. I just, I'm just, that's important for people to, that's always such an important point that sometimes tends to get glossed over that this is not just by, you know, government malfeasance. Like these are, this is a directed, targeted economic attack, terrorism on this country for political reasons. You know, that, mm. that's the sanctions. And I think that's what we're all experiencing today. So go ahead. Well, yeah. And you know, what are, what are sanctions designed to do? Of course, they're not designed to target the individuals that the sanction legislation claims it is targeting. Just as in Yemen, the same in Syria, they are unilateral uh, sanctions. And of course, they've had the added savagery of the Caesar sanctions, which were brought in by the Trump administration, which effectively punish any country, um, any non-aligned country that comes to the aid of Syria and the Syrian people to help with reconstruction post the terrorist devastation that was left behind by 
the Western cartel terrorist gangs, right, that are still situated in the Northwest and to some degree in the Northeast and the Southeast. Um, and right now, the situation in Syria is probably the worst it's ever been. The majority of houses only have between 30 minutes to one hour electricity per day. Wow. That's even in Damascus, the capital city, but in the countryside, they might not even have that. They might have electricity every three days, right? There's literally no fuel at the government fuel stations, none. Um, people were already rationed to around 30 liters per month, and they used to receive an SMS um, when their fuel was ready. So, so they were um, tracked by the number plate on their car, and they would get uh, the owner would get a message saying, you can come and get 15 liters or 30 liters or whatever. Um, to try and prevent the queues. Right now, we're seeing 24-hour, two-day queues at the at the fuel stations, just trying to get 10 liters, 15 liters. You've also got to understand in the post-war economy, the majority of employment is in driving the transport buses, the little minivans that pick up people along the way and take them to work, take them to school, take them wherever they want to go on, on that designated route, um, or taxis. So, you know, almost right. overnight, you've destroyed um, the ability of, of earning for a huge majority of the Syrian population, 90% of which is below whatever designated poverty line you want to imagine. Um, to give you an idea now, to 20 liters of fuel, and by the way, it's not very good fuel, it's not good quality, it's not high octane. Um, it effectively wrecks the cars. Why? Because um, the suppliers have no choice. In order to make it go further, they either water it down or they, you know, so the, the mm -hmm. quality is not good. Also, that's another thing that people don't even think about. Um, but for 20 liters of fuel on the black market, now you're paying 200,000 Syrian pounds. Now, the average um, employee with the government or with the army or with any of the kind of governmental institutions or civil society uh, institutions and organizations is earning around 150,000 Syrian pounds per month, right? Wow. Which is $27. Um, a bottle of That's gas now costs between 150,000 to 200,000 Syrian pounds. Um, a, a, a kilo of chicken, more than 40,000. So this, so, this is important. Know, I wanted to ask really quickly about the before we get away from the fuel, just because right there is important for the for the overlap. So you're in American out there in the West out there, thinking of using you know a, a quarter of time over the top of what you make every month to be able to have gas. So is that just gas for cars? We're talking about what's the overlap with the no sorry know gas uh, gas. I'm talking about is the gas bottles, the gas canisters. Right. So for cooking, for heating, that's what I thought, yeah. etc. So it's not uh, just sorry, the car. Yeah, that's the important difference for the cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's um, an important difference for an American out there to realize we're not just yeah, talking about right. fueling the car, right? <laughs> this is this is heating your home, cooking food. Yeah. I mean, and you can't afford that. I mean, that's that's incredible. No, you can't. And you know, the average family. Someone actually said to me, "But I use a bottle of gas for in one month," and I'm like, "Yeah, but you're not. You you don't have an extended family of relatives that have been driven out of their homes that are now living with you." Many households here in Syria now have up to 10 to 20 people, right? Mm -hmm. So a bottle of gas for cooking and heating lasts maybe one week. 
Also, the quality of the gas bottles is is really poor now because you can't get replacements um, because of sanctions. Nothing can be imported because of sanctions. So they've been battered and bashed and so on. And regularly you hear of um, gas tank explosions. And these are killing people and destroying homes. I mean, that, that kind of explosion is, is pretty high velocity, right? Um, and... On top of all of this, for example, the hospitals, they don't have fuel for the generators. So the public hospitals are unable to carry out operations for probably 18 hours of, out of 24, right? Which is they're to unable to heat. Yeah. Which they're unable to something that's not allowed. Sorry, there's delays. Yeah, I was going to say exactly. something that's not allowed uh, because the sanctions are not supposed to stop things like this, medications or affect those kind of treatments. And they pretend that's not the case. Since I've poked in, though, what what is the current logic, if you can even call it that, from the U.S. government perspective of why they're maintaining these sanctions, just so people remember what they're saying and why this is happening for average Syrians that they claim they're trying to protect? Well, I mean, you have to understand that the U.S. Uh, alliance, which includes, of course, the U.K., EU, Turkey, Israel, the Gulf states, UAE, well, not UAE so much, sorry, Qatar, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, New Zealand, Australia, all of these, Japan, um, have had a hand in the attempted regime change uh, in Syria that has failed, and it's been a very right. expensive failure. So, of course, now, the, the thing is with the West, what, what they don't do is give up, right? But then their policy becomes simply vindictive, and also still in this hope that if they can increase the pressure on the Syrian population, they can still incite violence. They can still maintain chaos because what happens in a post-war economy, and especially one that's under pressure from such economic savagery as the U.S. is imposing on Syria, then, of course, you start to get the mafia cartels, you start to get the profiteering, you start to get the corruption, you start to get the black market, you get the merchants, you get the ripping off of, of people. This and, and this is part of their project. You know, you can't blame that on the Syrian people or on the Syrian government or on uh, the Syrian presidency. This is a deliberate tactic by the West having lost the war in Syria, effectively, militarily, to now turn the screws on the Syrian people to increase their suffering, to turn them again against the government. Um, I mean, we had a, a, a sort of pretty violent protest in the last two or three days down in the south, in Sweda, in the Druze uh, region, in the city, where they burned government offices, they burned the, the photograph of the president, they tried to burn the Syrian flag, and they were photographed with kind of walkie-talkies and very similar equipment that was used back in 2011. Right. And of course, who's probably behind these particular protests is Israel. Why? Because Israel um, has for a long time targeted territory in the south. It, it has illegally annexed the Golan territories. But even throughout uh, the war against Syria, it has been trying to gain influence in the southern border territories, which include um, the Druze. And there are factions within the Druze community that have kind of um, allied themselves with Israel because, again, rather like the Kurdish separatists, they see themselves as having full autonomy, as uh, basically being a federal state within Syria itself. 
And of course, that is being um, manipulated uh, and weaponized by Israel and by the U.S. And of course, Israel sees the benefit in having control of the Syrian border territory on the border with Palestine right. um, as being to its benefit because it can create a buffer zone against um, Iranian militia and against Hezbollah, as it will describe it. it so it's mm-hmm. self-defense. You know, the Israeli ubiquitous excuse for all of its aggression and all of its uh, savagery against the Palestinian people and against Syria, of course. We've had an uptick in Israeli attacks against um, really Syrian positions, Syrian Mm -hmm. offensive and defensive uh, positions here. They've tried to target the Syrian offense positions, but of course the majority of um, offensive weapon development is way underground um, and firing missiles from uh, Lebanese airspace or even from the Altanaf uh, American occupied right. um, military base in the southeast of Syria on the border with Jordan, they can't really be very effective against the underground weapon development centers, right? Mm-hmm. So what they've been trying to do is to basically um, destroy Syria's air defense capability. And actually, this is where I want to make one point, because this is a point that consistently comes up on social media and in questions that people ask me whenever there's an Israeli attack. Well, why didn't Russia do something? Why didn't, you know, why didn't Russia just bomb Tel Aviv? Why? And we got this, what I call this um, video war game analysis, you know, where it's like, Mm. yeah, but they hit you, so you should hit them back even harder without looking at what the repercussions of doing that would be right now. Syria doesn't Mm. have control of its resources, right? America, the the U.S. forces are occupying um, the oil fields in the northeast, both directly and through the Kurdish contras. Um, They're stealing the oil and trading it um, into Iraq and then into Turkey, and then it eventually ends up usually with Israel, actually. Right. Um, and they're stealing the wheat, or they're burning the agricultural crops uh, in Syria, of course, under the Trump administration. They used thermal bombs um, against much of uh, the food crops, both in the Damascus-controlled areas, but also even in the um, northeastern sectors. And Israel was doing the same um, in the southern regions. Um, and so um, the, the reality is that Syria is not using its more sophisticated air defense systems because it doesn't want to expose them to Israeli attacks. So it's using its kind of Soviet-era Pantsir S-1 um, and S-2 to effectively intercept the Israeli missiles that have been incoming for the last few years. Um, I know for a fact it's maneuvering, for example, the Iranian Bavar system, the Bavar 373 system, which is equivalent to the S-300 or between the S-300 and the S-400. Um, it's moving those further south to the west of Damascus in order to be able to intercept the Israeli missiles quicker and faster before they can reach, for example, the areas around Homs, um, where there is a weapon uh, development center or even closer in towards um, Latakia, etc., or to the north of Damascus. Um, and the S-300s have not yet been used in anger. 
um, for a very important reason is mm -hmm. that I think Syria knows that there will be uh, an increased or, or a more intense escalation between Syria and Israel at some point. But in my view, the, the priority has to be Syria regaining control of its resources, right? right. Because the army needs fuel as well. But, you know, people kind of forget all of these intricacies, <laughs> how, well, how the lack of fuel impacts on all society, but also on the military. Well, it's very interesting. The, the Russia has, throughout this process, specifically Syria, Syria continued to show that restraint in and of itself has it accomplishes quite a lot. You know what I mean? Like not responding mm -hmm. in a belligerent way just because that's what the tit for tat analogy, you know, that that's what the US government seems to feel these days. Even though they try to continue to paint Russia as this Soviet Union strength all about, you know, like this mindset they try to frame them as yeah. overtaking the world as they're literally doing that under guise of fighting for freedom. You know, it's just very interesting, and I think not responding has a positive effect in this case. You know, it can, but I do know there's other arguments to be had, and ultimately that there well, – I think my ultimate point here is that we have to remember that Israel continuing to take these actions, the U.S. government continuing to sanction, all this is illegal. From every, from there's no argument yeah, about exactly. this. You can't say, well, Iran's there. Even if Iran is there, which they would have a right to be, seeing as how they're allies, it wouldn't justify an illegal strike. They're not under a declaration of war. The point is that Israel doing so is continually illegal. U.S. occupying this and all of this is illegal. So it's, I don't even understand how these arguments end up having a conversation in the corporate sphere unless you see them as inherently dishonest. I mean, that's it, everything we're well, talking about. I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is. Um, and the constant excuse that Israel is targeting Iranian militia, also the use of passenger jets, for example, um, to provide cover for um, Israeli jets or, or Israeli attacks, because then that silences the, um, the Syrian air defense out of fear of bringing down a passenger jet. I did write an article for RT, I think, on that. Um, and it's happened on a number of occasions, right? So, so they're yeah. willingly putting passenger airlines at risk. And it's only the, the kind of the good sense of the Syrian air defense and the Russians in holding back that has prevented mm. a disaster. Because, I mean, imagine if Syria were to, by some horrible happenstance, bring down um, a Pakistani airliner, which is what almost happened at one point. Um, then the international outrage at mm. this, and of course Israel would then benefit from that, the West would then benefit from that, Assad would be demonized yet further, right. you know, and Syria would be back on the kind of very, very, very blacklist, okay? Whereas yeah. at the moment, that there is a, to some degree, a kind of um, a sea change. I mean, we have had um, a UN rapporteur... Uh, Alina, Alina, her second name just completely went out of my head. But she was here for about 12 days speaking to government officials, civil society, faith leaders, schools, hospitals, traveling through most of the regions that are um, back under the control of Damascus. And she wrote an incredibly damning report on the effect of sanctions and demanded, in fact, that sanctions should be lifted on Syria and that Syria should be allowed to rebuild, that hospitals should be allowed to function um, properly, that people should have access to healthcare, people's kids should have access to education, to university and so on. Um, people should be able to travel um, by Pullman from city to city 
um, without paying extortionate prices or without waiting weeks for there to be buses available because there's no fuel, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and it, it so that was a major sea change for me because um, I can't remember the last time a UN rapporteur has actually written truthfully about the situation in Syria and has actually approached the Syrian government um, for information and for reports and, and has, in, in a sense, um, legitimized the Syrian government, which the West has been delegitimizing for the last 11 years. Right? Do, you th- do you think that hinges in particular around the shifting perspective, and rightly so, of Israel itself? Because I've, I've seen quite a shift in just the what the allowable discussion around, you know, a few years ago, Palestine never existed and they were all terrorists. Now today, you know, it's I've seen at least a very clear shift in what's allowed to be discussed. Do you think that's why or is there more to that, you think? I think um, I think what has been happening and um, what has been extremely worrying for Israel and has slightly put it on the back foot for a change um, is the unification of the Palestinian or the pro-Palestinian resistance, mm-hmm. the resistance block, right? Um, Which I think Hamas, they kind of broke into reality, but with their bellicose actions, yeah, personally. I well, think Robert's yeah, a great for job sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, you've had the uprising in, in um, Nablus and Janine and so on. Um, there has been um, a, a real increase in the violent resistance against the mm-hmm. Zionist occupying forces, right? Uh, and that, I think, what that's done is put Palestine back on the map mm-hmm. um, because, you know, in my belief, Western NGOs and pro-Palestinian movements and BDS movements actually, what they really did, whether intentionally or not, um, they reduce the role of the armed resistance. Mm. And, you know, for a long time, I was getting arguments in the West. Yeah, but why can't they um, demonstrate peacefully? You know, why do they have to be violent? Look, when you have an oppressive regime such as the Zionist regime in Palestine that is carrying out daily abuses against Palestinian civilians, including children, you know, the level of sexual abuse against children, right. experimentation on children, the theft of children's organs in Syria, uh, sorry, in in uh, Palestine, Both. in the occupied territories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In Syria, of course, it was orchestrated and organized by various organizations and terrorist groups, including ISIS and, of course, um, suspected uh, the white helmet. Certainly they're accused of it by a number of Syrian civilians and former uh, white helmet members. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, the, the, the fact is that the Zionist regime has been carrying out a genocide of the Palestinian people since before the Nakba, but let's say starting from the Nakba in 1948. And now what we're seeing is an arming of uh, the resistance, a unification of the resistance in the occupied territories in Gaza, which, of course, is totally under siege. 
but also um, with Iran, with Hezbollah, and with Syria. And this is very important because people probably don't know that Hamas, as the Muslim Brotherhood, were instrumental in the destabilization of Syria. They effectively collaborated with groups like Al-Qaeda, and they were funded by Qatar to do so, right? So for Syria to, um, with Iran pretty much brokering the deal, um, to accept Hamas back into Damascus for talks and negotiations is pretty big, and Israel knows that this is pretty big. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the other point that I want to make is that Erdogan in Turkey, who also, of course, was training terrorist groups that were coming in from Libya, and he was then sending them into Syria. Um, he had uh, ambitions to annex, for example, Aleppo, the industrial center of Syria in the north, Um He's created a buffer zone along the northern border made up of um, terrorist groups that he's rebranded as the new rebranding of the Free Syrian Army, so the Syrian National Army. But effectively, they're made up of kind of al-Qaeda um, factions and affiliates and, and splinter groups, etc. Um, and Erdogan, because he has elections coming up in June 2023, He needs to address his Syrian refugee issue um, in order to win the election. So he's looking to send at least one million of the five million Syrian refugees now on Turkish territory back into Syria. But he can't do this without negotiating with Iran, Russia, and above all with President Assad, right? So there's been talk of um, some degree of rapprochement between Turkey and Syria for some time. So then Mm -hmm. what happens, in my view and the view of many people here, Israel organizes the terrorist attack in Istanbul, demonizes the PKK, which brings Turkey back into the kind of threats of ground invasion and the bombing of um, the Northeast, which, by the way, Um, is destroying many of the oil fields that are providing revenue for the Kurdish countries and for the U.S. So there's a really interesting kind of Mm -hmm. very complex power battle going on at the moment. Um, And and Turkey is very central to this. Turkey um, profits from everyone. Right. They have this very interesting role in the middle, kind of like challenging role. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, what is it now? It's the hub for for Russia's gas, for Russia's grain, and so on. Mm-hmm. So it can be supplied without being affected by sanctions. So Turkey is essential to Russia, but but Russia is also essential to Turkey. Right? Mm-hmm. The EU is essential to Turkey, but Turkey is also essential to the EU. It's a NATO member state, right? Right. Um, so it- you know, it, it's it's playing a very kind of and of, and of course, what happened immediately after the terrorist attack, Israel started to make moves towards um, increasing trade, increasing um, economic ties with Turkey. So, you know, that's a clear indication to me who was behind the terrorist attack, because, no, we don't want you getting friendly with Syria again, because that, that, right. that, that's a complete anathema to our policy in the region. We, we don't want you to be friends, right? Well, Tur- Turkey stood up and... and- out very clearly made statements that suggested that it was an attack and an effort and that they didn't really name anybody in that statement but i didn't follow up necessarily 
going mm-hmm. forward. So has Turkey ever come out and made it explicitly clear who they thought was behind that? Well, they, they've said they think it's the PKK because that gives them um, kind of the green light to both enter Syrian territory right. and to um, bomb uh, the PKK elements, which is the majority of the SDF. And this is another irony, of course. The PKK <coughs> are a designated terrorist group by the U.S. and Turkey. And in fact, that was one of the reasons that the U.S. put sanctions, heavy sanctions on Syria under the Bush administration post 9-11. But now the PKK comprise um, or are the majority in whatever you want to call them, the SDF, the YPG, whatever. And the SDF is the latest kind of branding exercise. Um, But what is interesting, of course, is as per usual, the U.S. has refused to respond to Turkish attacks, even though actually one of the missile attacks came very close to um, one of the American bases. Um, although the U.S. has refused to admit if there were any personnel casualties in the attack. Um, but the Kurds are complaining that the U.S. is not doing enough to defend them, right? Turkey That's is bombing, new. as I said, the, the, the oil fields. So it's reducing um, by about 20% so far, I think, the revenue for the Kurdish countries. Of course, there is the issue that they're also damaging what's effectively <laughs> Syrian property. But the difference is that Syria has the capability to repair and restore, um, the Kurds don't. Mm -hmm. So whatever is destroyed will remain destroyed when it's under Kurdish occupation. I guess from the Syrian perspective, military perspective, they see it that if the Turkish um, operation pushes the Kurds back to their 30 kilometer um, from the border kind of red line, Mm-hmm. then that gives them the opportunity to move the Syrian Arab army to the Turkish border and to secure this area for Syria and to secure the borders. Now, I know that even the head of the Russian military here in Syria, um, General Chaiko, has been, I think, at least once to negotiate with the Kurds to try and persuade them, look, you know, America is not going to protect you. The only military that will protect you, but you have to negotiate first, um, is the Syrian Arab army. We had this situation, of course, in Afrin (laughs) in 2017 when the Kurds basically refused to allow the Syrian Arab army in. And guess what? You know, the Turkish um, proxy forces moved in and right. massacred a huge number of the Kurds and, and drove them out of Afrin anyway. And then everyone blamed the Syrians. I was like, how right. does that happen? <laughs> this, this feels like we've seen, you know, this same kind of dynamic is already like, I, I remember pointing this out w- in the midst of this before when I, I basically made the argument that what's ultimately the difference. And I know there is major differences between different NATO states and what's happening, but if it ultimately mm-hmm. boils down to more NATO occupation of Syria, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're yeah. all playing this game a certain way. And Turkey, as usual, is, you know, playing both sides. But I think it or rather specifically the Turkish government. But I just find it hard not to see that as just more uh, just another way to justify from a different angle the same. And it's the same game, right? They're terrorists. We think so. It's disputed. And we're going to push in because we're a threat. It's the same game that the U.S. always plays. You know, it's just hard yeah. not to see it that way. Yeah, I mean, um, the one thing that sort of, you know, sometimes it's quite hard to, to grasp hope out of this incredibly chaotic um, mm-hmm. situation. 
<laughs> and when you see the Syrian people suffering to the extent they are, it's it's kind of very disheartening um, often. Um, but I, I kind of look back to, I think it was July this year, where there was a meeting in Tehran between Erdogan, um, Putin, and Raisi, and Khamenei. And back then it was made very clear that were Erdogan to uh, basically enter Syrian territory, he wouldn't only be dealing with the Syrian Arab army, he would also be dealing with Russian forces and Iranian forces. And so, you know, that's not an idle threat. Russia doesn't make idle threats. I mean, if that's one thing that we've learned (laughs) from the whole Ukrainian situation, Russia does what it says it's going to do. Right. And that right. to some degree is, is why it holds back on, on making um, kind of volatile statements, you know, because yeah. it will follow through. So it's not like the U.S. that is a lot of hot air a lot of the time. But at the same time, you know, they are so illegally aggressive in every country where they have military. It's it's extraordinary. I mean, under Biden, there's been a regular bombing campaign against the real anti-ISIS military, right. whether it's Iraqi PMU or whether it's Syrian, right? Since, since Biden came into power, and more recently under um, US surveillance, Israel bombed Iranian tankers that were coming um, across land through uh, Iraq into Syria and then into Lebanon, because Lebanon is, of course, energy deprived since the Beirut port explosion, since um, the the economic explosion that, of course, was managed for decades by the West, particularly the mm-hmm. UK, actually, in Lebanon. Um, and And so... You know, the U.S. is, I don't know, it, it, it is such a power for bad, wherever it is, to be honest. I mean, and you know. The important, just the important thing I always add to that is regardless of how you perceive that statement, it's just the simple factual reality of history that we can see in these countries. I, whether or not you think they're trying to do good, it obviously <laughs> hasn't panned out that way. And so it's just that, that it's amazing we have to make these arguments. I want to make a funny point, though, since you brought up the idea of, <laughs> of Russia – you're following through with what it says and and that the i make the same point often that it's you know it's very measured the government in its responses and and then they that's why they have to so clumsily go out of their way to like clip one part out and misrepresent (laughs) what it means and it's just so embarrassing but i thought i I literally laughed out loud last night when i read it that basically i think it was i don't want to try to find it it was it was a statement i think it was by a nato representative but the bottom line saying that that the the nuclear threat level has reduced because of our our of our you know, talking statements to Russia, you know, that, they, that we talked to them and now it's reduced. They, oh, we talked them down. <laughs> right. I'm thinking, okay, so Russia never actually even made these threats. They misrepresented the idea, clipped yeah. it out, and they basically said, we'll respond if we have to. They're the only ones saying they're going to, they have the right to strike first. And then it later becomes because we said, we lied about what they said. And that's why this, it's just like <laughs> they manufactured an entire thing out of nothing. And it just made me laugh out loud. I'm like, good, the threat's uh, gone. I mean, it was person. like, I, I don't know if you remember, but not that long ago, about a month ago, there was a, an extraordinary meeting in Ankara between um, William Burns and the head of um, 
or at least one of the officials from Russian intelligence. <laughs> what I loved was the reports that were put out after, yeah, we just talked about the nuclear threat and the fact that we don't want to use nuclear. And I'm like, what? Seriously, dudes? You came all the way to Ankara in the middle of a, of a war that America, of course, is claiming it's not fighting, mm -hmm. but, but it is fighting um, in Ukraine. Uh, just to kind of say, yeah, no, we don't want to use nuclear. <laughs> it's like, Come on, seriously! It's so ridiculous. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, and that's even why Russia's government went to the point to say, "Fine, then we're taking it off the table entirely," which when they hadn't before. They, you know, mm -hmm. then of course they just go, "Well, they're lying about that." And it's like, my God, at what point do you just realize uh, that this is just you setting what you claim they think? Which right. I, I can't stop pointing this out that right now, and you know, overlaps of stuff we're seeing. We were talking about beforehand, and that, that mm -hmm. right, they, they just have this tendency to say, "Well, this is how he feels. This is what the Russian government wants to mm -hmm. do." And it's like, how the hell do you think you know? Like at the very least, as an honest person, you're being subjective. You're stating your opinion as fact as a journalist, and that's just embarrassing. But, you know, it's because well, yeah, we know I mean, Putin it's, wants it's to take a, over the world. Go ahead. How many headlines saying that Putin was, sorry, I shouldn't laugh because it's not really funny. It's really kind of macabre. But, but saying that Putin was dying of cancer, that his health was failing. Right. And I think it was actually, William, was it William Burns that then said, no, he's in perfect health. <laughs> actually, I don't know what this is, you know, what the hell right. are you talking about kind which, of thing. Which we should question that too. I mean, the point is we don't know. And the fact that they just love to pretend they do because it's advantageous for what they're saying, it's, it's silly. It's the same thing that happens in our politics here. Biden, yeah, I mean, you know, Trump walks funny down the stairs and suddenly he's a, he's, you know, there's 30,000 articles about why he's neurologically impaired. You know, it's just crazy. And at the same time, sorry, you elected Biden. <laughs> right, seriously. <laughs> like Biden with his imaginary friends that he shakes hands with. And, and the best seriously. one was the most recent with Macron, where he starts walking off and Macron's like, no, 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 you have to come back and face this way. Yeah, you like directly. I, mean, I, I feel bad because, you know, at some level, it it's almost it's depressing to watch somebody who's so clearly struggling with sen senility or whatever. But yeah, but he's also a war criminal, so I kind of go up. Oh, but exactly, never mind, I don't feel yeah. bad about it. But it's just it's just sad that that is such a blatant game that's being played. But yeah, the point yeah. being that media will, is willing to take it wherever they want to, and you know, yeah, and, 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 and that, the fabrication is off the scale. I mean, they don't yeah. even care anymore. They don't even care when. The Ukrainian human rights chief is sacked because she lied. You know, exactly but what she lied about still stands as a story. It's not retracted. Yes. It's crazy. I mean, I, I mean, and even more so that, that that kind of segued into the Viagra story, which was then oh. sort of pulled back. And then, but no, but now it's this country over here. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like they just have a new, they don't have a new playbook. They just keep going through the same cycled lies. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, the, I, I mean, I just burst out laughing with the Viagra story. Yes. I mean, and then there was the guy on Twitter who put out the story, you remember, about stealing the gold teeth, which was then yeah. proven to be another hoax. And then he put out another story about Russians killing and eat. I mean, again, I'm not laughing at the story because it's hideous, but I'm just laughing at, at the kind of clownish fabrication that's going on you know yeah. and, and he's claiming that russians occupied the zoo and killed and ate the animals i honestly you it's know, it's we, we've seen this everywhere i mean i always go like that just reminded me of like the argument from venezuela right where they said that they were starving so badly that they were eating animals at uh, the zoo and all they did was pointed these were people that were stealing like these tiny rare animals to sell them for uh, abby martin broke that story down you know and the point is they just they will always lie in the interest of their agenda and i don't know whether that means the corporate media 
stenographers are even aware of that or just think that they're doing their their job is to listen to what the authority tells them. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it's I just guess it depends what level they're at. Because, you know, a lot of them are operatives. I look at the majority of the BBC uh, correspondents. They're nothing more than extensions of of MI6 and associated security agencies. Mm -hmm. They're there to produce a narrative. Um, You know, and it's like, who was it? Jeremy Bowen getting caught out, sitting on the ground, pretending to be a a kind of maverick war reporter while the woman behind him is carrying (laughs) her shopping, looking at him like, what are you doing down there? (laughs) It's, uh, it's, and, and that, yeah. but see, that's what I wonder, it's like, do they, like, even at that level, I, you know, I, I wonder if they lie to themselves and just pretend that it's, that's just a source that they have. Like that famous clip that I've played, you know, where the agent, CIA's agents talking about how, you know, well, yeah, we lie, we, we give them false stories. Yeah. And I, don't, I mean, we all know this reality, right? That the government, we just, some people like to pretend it's because they do it for freedom and that therefore it makes sense or, you know, whatever the abstract lie santa claus narrative they tell themselves you know but it's it they go along with it you know like the idea like for instance take ukraine for example that it's okay to support this because there it's a means to an end they're fighting for freedom against the greater evil that's the kind of logic that we spin out here but it's it's just a choice bottom line yeah i mean i guess even um the security agencies to some degree have this belief that you know maybe they're patriots that they're defending national security. I'm not quite sure how they kind of work that out when, generally speaking, they're attacking countries thousands of miles away that have, have are absolutely no... What threat was Syria right, to the United right. States? Well, and then he, other, than, the other than against their economy because it was in bed with China and it was developing the Belt and Road Initiative and the Five right. Seas Project and so on. And... and the Iranian-backed uh, Russian, sorry, Russian-backed Iranian uh, pipeline instead of the mm-hmm. Qatari U.S.-backed pipeline. You know, yeah, okay, that's a threat. But what's that a threat to? That's a threat to U.S. money and supremacy. Yeah. Right. It's not a. It's not a national security threat. Not at all. Neither was Venezuela. You know, the same thing Obama did. Like they just they argue that their their yeah. interests are national security. It's just not true. But I mean, to, to, to tie it to the point I made about Israel, right? Like, so we can see things like, for instance, Palestine itself. That's an occupied territory. That's never changed. The UN maintains that. Yeah. Geneva Conventions have always maintained that an occupied territory has the right to armed rebellion. So this is the only what we're talking about. Syria, Afghanistan, like the argument that people fighting back after being illegally occupied are the terrorist force is inherently <laughs> false. And it doesn't even matter whether they are in your mind what you would perceive as terrorists. It doesn't change the reality of the law. And so it just it becomes narrative from there forward. And that's how all of these things are going right now, including. Iran. Yeah, and also the the full- Forces who genuinely fight back against the terrorism that has been incubated by right. um, the countries that are using it to destabilize target nations um, are then designated terrorists and, and right. criminalized and demonized in Western perception by the media and by the UN agencies and government agencies and institutions and think tanks and blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, here's a good example of that, right? I'm sure you saw they just declared apparently EU, Russia, and enti- the whole the whole country terrorist state, right? <laughs> you, Ukraine happily pointing that out. Just a reminder, Russia's a terrorist state. Like, I think I even have that tweet up. I mean, how, it, that's how, not even legitimate. They, I mean, they can't do that. I know, it's, exactly. It's, well, 
give me your thoughts on this because this is actually pretty incredible. And what that, what are the implications of something like this from a from a geostrategic, you know, foreign policy perspective? I mean, nothing. I mean, the thing is, what people are failing to understand and living here in Syria, you know, um, it's it's kind of a, a daily reality that the West is becoming more and more irrelevant. You know, there is whether whether you kind of buy into the whole multipolar kind of um, mm-hmm. vision or not. The, the fact is that there is a pivot away from um, the US, UK, EU cartel. Right. And there is a massive pivot on, on a trade basis, on an economic basis, on a, even on a military um, basis, um, you know, military industrial complex basis, away from the West to the East, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, here in Syria, for example, we've, we've had um, the Prime Minister of Belarus has been in the last two weeks. Um, there have been constant visits from representatives from Donetsk and Luhansk um, to talk about future uh, trade deals and cooperation, etc. Um, you know, that there's, um, I mean, that's one thing since the beginning of the special military operation in Ukraine that you haven't seen Russia stop. I mean, Lavrov has been from practically to, I think, every country in the world, right? mm. <laughs> apart from the, the, the kind of the Western bloc, um, the imperialist bloc, building um, trade relations, building um, diplomatic relations, right? right? There's a huge shift. There's a massive shift. And the West is just actually, I mean, it's like this whole EU voting or to designate Russia a terrorist state. It's, it's ridiculous. The yeah. EU parliament doesn't have the power to do that. Right. Well, I mean, quite <laughs> frankly, to me, this is have... desperation. It's desperation it, what we're seeing. I was going to say, quite frankly, I mean, like the U.S. government, for instance, does not have the legal right to in unilaterally sanction a country. Like, if you yeah. really want to go back into the documentation, yeah, exactly. like there's even just, there's even points to argue that that's actually illegal, you know. But it, it doesn't illegal. matter because Russia does it, China does it, right? They do. They, they but don't I, have know. a UN mandate in Syria for the sanctions. Oh, well, exactly. They don't have a UN yeah. mandate, so it's effectively illegal. But here's my point, though, is that I agree with that too. But that's from even from the UN. I'm talking about mm-hmm. not even the, going through the UN. The U.S. government sanctions people economically. Every other day, it seems. The point is that they act like they are the ruling body of the world in that sense, even though they argue that they that they don't see it that way. And so that's in and of itself illegal. You know, everything. This is rampant lawlessness at its core, no matter what you claim you're fighting for. And it's total global insecurity. I mean, if you look at Mm -hmm. the world right now, you know, things are kicking off in China and in Taiwan, um, obviously in Ukraine and Azerbaijan. In Iran, I mean, you know, we've seen absolutely a Western-funded, Western-backed um, armed insurgents, weapons coming in from Iraqi Kurdistan um, in the north of Iraq through um, the Iranian border to the protesters. And, you know, killing, the majority of killings have been of security forces and police forces um, in Iran. Is that, it, It's like kind of Syria too. Right? right, it's like we've gone right. back to 2011 again, and of course, you know, I've spoken to to various um, women rights activists in Iran who've said to me, "Look, 
Western interference knocks our campaign back about 10 years because exactly. what is the government going to do? It's going to become more hardline in response to Western interference. Well, which is interesting, actually, though, since you mentioned that, and I agree. But what's interesting is, that, and maybe this is taken a play from, from Russians, gov- Russia, Russian government responses, a, pl- a play from their book, that Iran recently removed their morality, morality police, right? And, mm-hmm. and the argument being that they did so because they, the people, not the Western burning police in the street movement, but, but, but actually listening to what the people are arguing for, and they removed this. So you can, I mean, what, what, but then when that happens, of course, the West goes, we did it. <laughs> we succeeded with our protesting. You know, and the reality is, as Robert writes of the other day in his, one of his articles, that this just shows you the example, whether you, you know, obviously, any, have, we, we can all point out things we personally have an issue with most governments, but things that you can say they have issues with, they're not doing right or however you perceive it, but that they are listening to their people, which is democracy. Right. I mean, however you want to perceive that limited or otherwise, it's just such an obvious difference from what they claim is happening. And the, these protests are horrific. Like you just there's a lot of examples of exactly like you're saying. And, and to my point before, that they only seem to have play one, two and three. They just reinitiate the same thing in Iran. This is the exactly. you know, this year's regime change effort. They seem to do it every single year. Yeah, it's, it's just painful. But who suffers the most? The people on the ground the they claim they're fighting for. Exactly. Yeah, and because, I mean, Iran is still under sanctions. And as right. I, I interviewed a young um, Iranian female academic, PhD, um, and she has her own little media channel. She's from Esfahan. And she wears the hijab, but she said she's actually against enforced um, scar- yeah. head covering, right? Um, and it was her who said to me, look, you know, it, what people also don't understand is wearing the hijab was an early resistance statement from right. the 1979 revolution to to depose the, the Western-imposed Shah of Iran. It was um, sort of an anti-Western sentiment, right? Yeah. You're just wearing it as a yeah. protest. Yeah. yeah. But of course now, you know, to some degree that's outdated. So there does need to be a change um, in the legislation. But as she said, I will continue wearing the hijab. It's just that I don't believe women should be told what to wear um, in in the 21st century. You know, but as she said, and I actually asked her to talk me through the process that they will use in order to get this change in the law. And when she described it to me, I just laughed. I said, well, that's democracy. You know, exactly. You right. know, that, that's exactly what democracy should be, exactly how she described. You go to your representative, the representative takes it to parliament, parliament then debates it and then blah, blah, blah. And then mm-hmm. potentially the law is changed if there's enough of a, of a representation um, for um, the change. Right. Right. And I, I was, you know, our democracy is so broken, <laughs> so broken. Right. I mean. If you want to look at totalitarianism, look at the West. Look at Canada, for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, look at look at the draconian measures that Canada and the 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 Nazi regime of Justin Trudeau, who has connections, of course, to Klaus Schwab, who has Nazi origins, Christian Freeland, whose uh, maternal grandfather was Michael Chom or Michelle. Shomiak, who ran Nazi propaganda from inside Ukraine with the Krakow News, right? right. Um, Freeland herself uh, was actually a journalist with two Banderite um, publications in Ukraine before she uh, went into politics uh, and became the deputy prime minister. Look at, look at their expansion of um, 
the assisted suicide legislation, ah. which is looking to embrace um, um, psychiatric cases that may not even um, have the faculties to consent to hmm. being fast-tracked into suicide, right? Um, up to one-year-old babies, oh, mature uh, the, the minors, 14 to 17-year-olds. The recent case I saw was a woman who just simply had struggles getting this chair in, in, installed that brought her up the stairs. That was it, yeah. and they and they offer and they were offered and pressured her to do take to take this up and yeah. put herself to death. And she spoke out about it. It's like I don't even they, I didn't even they ask. They don't them. offer palliative care. They don't offer social security or health care or um, homeless centers. They don't offer anything. They're literally fast tracked into killing themselves. And by the way, the, the, the kind of the recent glorification of suicide by various fashion houses like uh, La Maison Simon, right, that put out an advert showing this girl that had made the choice to um, prematurely end her life because she had a terminal illness and basically romanticizing the whole procedure. Well, that takes right. you back to 1941 when Goebbels... Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's propaganda saw, um, commissioned a film, um, oh God, uh, Ich Klage an, uh, I accuse, um, which was the story of a young woman with multiple sclerosis who begged her husband, who happened to be a doctor, to end her life, and he ended up going on trial. It was a kind of completely romanticized view of the Nazi T4 program um, and enforced sterilization. Now, the T4 program killed up to 300,000 people between 1941 and 45. And, and here, Canada is, is absolutely mirroring the T4 program, yeah. right, in what it's doing, in my view. And, and I don't think I'm being extreme because they're not offering any alternative. Right. And babies and up pressure. to the age of one. Like, there, the should, there should never be acceptable pressure in this kind of discussion. That's never, and that, but see the same thing we could talk about injections or anything else. It's yeah. that you're right. And there's clearly a very problematic <laughs> force. I mean, it, this is eugenics. I mean, what they're doing, yeah. however you spin this is, is just not okay. eugenics, whatever Absolutely. you want to brand it as it's the same thing. You know? And, and the point we were saying before you, you compare this to the, if any of this was happening in a country that they'd want to demonize, this would be framed yeah. exactly the opposite. I mean, just take the case of, for instance, the New Zealand baby that just got taken control of by the state because the parents Absolutely, rightly yeah. wanted to choose one of the other donors that were unvaccinated, but they said no, and they made that choice for them. If that happened yeah. in Iran, they, they would lose yeah. their minds. And they would frame it, you know, here's actually a great example. The argument recently of 15,000 protesters put to death which was proven to be utterly made up and i mean it's it's amazing but that was spread all around the country yeah. right or all the western media i what's interesting to me is that, 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 that i mean they have a judiciary process like the idea that that would even be argued they just order them to death now they think that's oh because that's in the middle east and that's a bad yeah that's what they perceive <laughs> it. Savages, but, yeah right and it's the same as this saying and that you know that biden just said i order them to death people would be like well that doesn't make sense right and they would consider <laughs> that wait there's a process yeah. isn't there but they just don't apply that to there and that's a level of racism you could argue or or yeah. propaganda that's been put on them by their governments yeah. but it's it's incredible to me yeah, absolutely. No, it's extraordinary. And actually, when you look up, because I've just finished an article on the um, the, the medical assistance in dying, 
Mm. Um, And I actually just went and kind of checked on Russia because I thought, well, does Russia have any euthanasia laws or or, um, permissibility? Mm -hmm. And actually, I I mean, I didn't dig too deep and I I could be proven wrong, but actually Russia seems to be um, vehemently against it for the very reasons that we've just talked about in in that Mm -hmm. it can be abused, right? Which it is being abused in in Canada and in the 5 I nations. Canada is kind of leading the way, to be honest, Mm -hmm. Um, just as Australia led the way in certain COVID-19 responses also. It's almost like they have kind of pilot, um, pilot countries to, to run through pilot programs, right? Which, right. which then central, centrally feed into the WEF, Great Reset Agenda, Transhumanism, Eugenics, etc. Right. Um, we saw the UK and, as well. Yeah. Like Midazolam exactly. was a big focus by, by Iconic. And, you know, there's, yeah, there's, it's, it's everywhere, you know, and it's, it's very, mm-hmm. very sad to see that this is something being normalized today. And yeah, it's good to see that some governments, at least ostensibly, are saying that that's not what they support. It's glad, I'm glad to see that. Well, I think, um, you know, we'll just touch on um, very briefly. I mean, um, China is harder for me to comment on because China as a nation is so kind of inscrutable. It's very hard for me to get a handle on exactly where China is. And there's very kind of um, conflicting reports. and, And you do, to some degree, have this polarization of discourse because you have on one side the real Sinophiles <laughs> that, that will hear nothing bad about China. And then on the other side, you have the extreme kind of, they're all in it together and China's leading the way to social credit and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, and surveillance and so on and so forth, right? And, and then in the middle, <laughs> there's, there's no one, you know, literally no one, because if you try to talk to the Sinophiles about, well, China doesn't do good in everything, you know, what about Yemen and it's looting Yemeni oil? Ah, yeah. your controlled opposition. And then if you mm-hmm. say to the other side, well, look, China is investing in infrastructure. It is building, you know, high-speed railways. It is, it mm-hmm. has pulled its people out of poverty. Ah, controlled opposition. Cause you don't say, in the end, no one reaches a kind of, um, an objective conclusion because you can't, right. you know, because you're almost right. being forced into, into picking sides. And I, I just think that's so wrong because who the hell can actually conclude absolutely categorically what is going on right now? You can't exactly. because it, you know, the world is in such a state of transformation, whether it's negative or positive, nobody can actually kind of, I don't think can predict that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I see some I, positive aspects from a Syrian perspective because if the power switches to the east, then Syria is in a much better position than than being under the jackboot um, mm. of the West eternally, as it has been for the last seventy five yeah. years since its independence from France in nineteen forty six. It's it's consistently been a target of CIA, MI six, regime change, destabilization, clandestine military operations, assassinations, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. So if that ends, you know, I'm happy for Syria and I'm happy for all the countries that have suffered that since Mm -hmm. the the U.S. came into existence, right? So so that's kind of, yeah, go on. 
Oh, sorry. I, I was going to say, I think that your point is it's important to see that, that that's kind of what we were talking about beforehand is just that objectivity is really the enemy today for the social engineers, right? And they you, mm. we're being forced to make a choice, especially in places where we shouldn't be making choices, where the, the argument should be, well, we have not enough information, but you're being forced in. If you don't make a choice, you're being attacked in, an, in a unique way of like you're just straddling the fence or whatever. And the point is like we need to realize that it is okay to say we don't know and that objectivity is the absolute mm. most important thing today. And I, that's what we're highlighting there is that you know, there is no honest conversation where there, where there is, where there's only two sides to choose from and there's not enough information. <laughs> and that's like literally everywhere you look today. And I think that's by design. And I, I think, yeah, to no. kind of, oh, go ahead. No, I mean, we've been gaslighted into this for, for, for years. I mean, you know, the U that's the U S playbook you're with us or against us. Right. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, and that for me is, is one of the roles of social media is to create this kind of gladiatorial environment in which, I mean, look at Twitter. If you just going to put your hand above the parapet and say something that this faction doesn't like, then you're mobbed. It doesn't, it, it's, it's yeah. not a constructive or, discussion. Or more specifically to what we're saying is you're in the mid, not even either side. You're just going, maybe we no, should exactly. say we don't know. And then both <laughs> sides come at you and you're like, well, how is that? How is objectivity something people are mad about? It just blows my mind. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or even like, how come I'm not allowed to say, actually, I'm not sure. I don't know yet. I haven't reached yeah. a conclusion because right. I'm still on, on, I'm still investigating. I'm still looking into it and this changes my mind and this changes my mind and this puts it into context and, and this expands you know, my investigation, etc. Yeah. You know, it's not something finite. It's something pretty infinite, actually, when, when you're looking at such a vast scale issue as what is happening right now. But what I wanted to say about Russia, while I don't fully understand China's motives, I do, I've worked with Russians here in Syria and in Russia um, for some time, right, in Syria, I, I haven't worked with them, but I've worked alongside them, alongside the military, alongside, um, for example, the amnesty and reconciliation teams that were being often managed and administered by, by the Russians as a neutral force. So between Damascus and um, the armed groups, right, negotiating um, peace deals and brokering them and um, enabling some of the armed groups to be integrated back into Syrian society, et cetera, et cetera, just as, of course, they did in Chechnya, by the way, um, after the, the kind of the U.S. destabilization um, project back then. Right? Mm -hmm. um, um, but the one thing I will say about Russia, um, having been there quite recently as an independent observer of the referendum in Donbass, what I was really surprised about in, inside Russia um, was the investment in civilian infrastructure and right. the investment in civilian futures, like um, putting forward um, offers and prospects for buying your own home, for building your own home, for buying land and building on it, for establishing businesses. Um, I went to the east. I went to um, some of the biggest cities in the East to meet refugees from Mariupol. But what was really um, kind of fascinating to me, whereas in the West, we're destroying everything, right? Mm. Anything related to civilian infrastructure, anything related to housing, to, to health, um, to, to um, social security, we're destroying it. In Russia, what I saw was it being built up. 
and things, you know, housing being affordable housing being made accessible to civilians right. on, on a really quite vast scale. Of course, people are going to be saying, yeah, but in the rural areas, it's not, you know, of course not. But what I'm seeing is, is um, investment into what will secure the future for the Russian population. Exactly the opposite to what we're seeing in yep. the West, right? Right. And, um, and Go ahead. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to add to, you know, the, the point is that people will, in, like to our point before, who have already made their mind up about what the narrative is, about what they're doing, will say, that's not true. That can't be true because I know the story. You know, that's what I was told. <laughs> truth yeah. is you can there's evidence of people like yourselves that were there that you know that are that are currently showing you what's happening or can showing you areas that were previously bombed by Ukraine or by Russia depending on what happened that they're now being built back up and like in the midst of all of this and or even going back to Syria for example I, I remember a conversation that you and I explicitly had about you know the the busing of of both sides out of conflict zones and you know things that were happening during there that showed you the opposite of what they claimed their their evil intentions were you know again same point that they know what they're thinking and feeling but it's obvious to see that at the very least that there's not this you know, global domination, destroy everything because we're evil mindset that they just clumsily patch over anybody they're trying to to overtake, you know. And meanwhile, the most incredible part, as you know, is funding like just the most the worst entity you could possibly imagine right now. In a, you know, like looking at the Nazi, neo-Nazi fascist element that they have been yeah, building inside exactly. of Ukraine for, for decades now, you know, and they're openly saying they are the things that they're going, no, you don't understand. That's not what they are. And then they're over here, Nazis saluting on the yeah, on CNN. I, I, in the I mean, you know. yeah. I mean, I put yeah. out on Twitter one day because I just reached a point where I was like, "Am I seriously arguing that Nazis are bad? <laughs> like, do I really have to debate this?" Right. I mean, that's the point we're at. I mean, Nazis are being normalized. They're being given platforms in American educational institutions like Stanford. Um, they're being given. Um, Getty Photography Awards, just like Al Qaeda were right, in Syria. Right. What you a know, great they're given platforms on major uh, media outlets. You know, whether it's I don't know New York Times or whatever, or the Telegraph in the UK. I mean, they, they invited in uh, Labib Al Nahas, the leader of Ar Al Sham, one of the most violent, brutal groups in Syria, to to actually write an op-ed. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. and and so this incredible kind of normalization of probably one of the most abhorrent groups in our society that, that the West basically imported into our countries by our countries. I mean, the UK, the EU, um, the US after the second world war that run actually the majority in the US of our big corporations. I mean, for example, the victims of communism, one of the biggest organizations that is criminalizing China over, well, over everything, but particularly over the um, claims of persecution of um, Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province, that was founded by um, it's a big, it's a big new Brzezinski and a guy called Lev Dobriansky, who's a Nazi mm -hmm. from Ukraine. <laughs> 
it's, yeah. it's, it's mind blowing. It, the West in general needs to look in the mirror these days and genuinely yeah. ask themselves whether or not, you know, that, that, that it, it doesn't have to be all encompassing, but I just remember that, that joking clip, you know, are we the baddies? That whole like meme that the video that's out there, like that's kind of yeah. what we need to start asking ourselves. It's like, okay, if you can look back through history and realize that every single big demonized boogeyman out there, Saddam, Osama bin Laden, that they were literally working with them before that happened or you know any number of examples that are is that the reality you know bringing dr ishii from japan and then nazis over for operation paperclip yeah. after this you know like so was it really to stop the bad well, guys got claim. i mean you know the i can't remember when it was but stephen kinzer wrote a fantastic book called the chief poisoner which was about Sidney gottlieb and the japanese guy whose name you just mentioned i think who were brought to oh, dr. Um, ishii. Yeah. Fort, yeah fort detrick to to expand the kind of the MK Ultra and the and the exactly. chemical warfare and the bio warfare and, and the experiment that was carried out over San I think it was over San Francisco to, to basically yeah. I mean mm -hmm. you know it's just extraordinary. Guys, your own country has been carrying out Nazi experiments on you since exactly. the Second World War. And it's important Nazis to do that and Japanese yeah. war criminals. Yeah, it's, and, and, and I mean, I said quite literally, like this is not an analogy here, guys. Like this is literally no. bringing over the people that were doing some of the most grotesque experimentation yeah. you've ever heard of, and saying, yeah. "Okay, we'll fund you over here now." But we won the war, though, right? We stopped the and, bad and guys. And we'll wipe your record clean, by the way. Exactly. You know, you, you didn't and, do any of this, <laughs> right? And and the point is not yeah. to say that there was even like a. It, it very well could have been two bad guys fighting each other for control of the bad things, right? It doesn't have to be as simple as we try to make mm -hmm. it. But at the end of the day. We just need to reflect on what this really is and stop blindly defending what we were born into. Like we have some reason to go, no, that's my side. And that, let's just engage with the truth here. And I want to I, I want to finish with the point that I think is really interesting about where this is going. Right. And, and this is something you might have seen. We just talked about the Russia being declared a terrorist state. Now, right after that happened, the, the absurd argument of that, we saw things like this begin to happen. And this isn't the first time, by the way. We've already seen some, uh, Dugan's daughter was assassinated inside of Russia. Yeah. Explosions hit air bases deep inside of Russia, killing three soldiers. And now we've even seen the New York Times speaking to a Ukrainian official who's backed this up and said, yes, the Ukraine bombed inside of Russia. And now the U.S., oh, we're not encouraging that, though. <laughs> we, we don't we don't have any say over what they do. I, it's just mind blowing. And by the way, a quick dance back to June 1st, 2022. Zelensky says he won't attack Russian territory, but blah, 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 blah. Right. It just it's just such a frustrating reality that we're watching this play out. And now what's Russia going to do? I mean, from, from if this was Israel or the United States, this would already spawn out of control by now. They're literally bombing inside of Russia. You know, so where do you see this going? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's very similar to the uh, Mirot Verret's uh, kill list, which I'm on quite recently. Um, Roger Waters, Eva Bartlett, Alina Lip. Um, I think 300 children are on that list. And that's that's a NATO-produced list, right? That's a U.S. CIA-produced list. They, so that gives you an indication. Time. Yeah, to you know, that gives you... Been killed. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, and they they have been killed. You know, they are yeah. literally on the list as, as a kind of red uh, line through them as killed, like um, uh, Dugan's daughter. Right. Um, the thing is, I think what, you know, what you will um, continue to see from Russia is huge restraint. I mean, I think what you're seeing now is a tactic to, to basically plunge Ukraine into darkness, you mm -hmm. know. 
they're, right. they're attacking um, electrical power stations, energy um, supply uh, routes, etc. Um, that's a deliberate uh, tactic. Um, I mean, there are a couple of mil- Russian military analysts that I would recommend to people following. One is Andrei Martinov, who, oh God, his YouTube channel is Smoothie. I think it's Smoothie 12, but if you put in Smoothie and Andrei Martinov, you'll find him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another guy on um, Substack, uh, which is Big Surge, S-E-R-G-E, both of those and Jacques Beau, who's a Swiss intelligence, former Swiss intelligence officer, all three um, give a very measured analysis of the Russian military strategy. And it's well worth because you can easily get caught up in, as I said, this kind of video war game um, mm-hmm. chatter on social media and on Telegram and on Twitter and on Facebook, etc. And it's very unrealistic, to be honest. You know, again, I witnessed Russian military strategy in Syria many times. And I have to say the Syrian Arab army found it frustratingly restrained, right? (laughs) Because (laughs) Russia always had as its priority to actually save the lives of Syrians, even those that had taken up arms against the state in the hope of a political resolution at some point. (laughs) Okay. Um, and, And that's fundamentally what you're always going to see from Russia. So you're not going to see a knee-jerk reaction. But what they will do is target the, um, the, the, the military bases and the military uh, positions that are firing those missiles. And mm-hmm. I think also what's really interesting, another person to follow is Brian Valetic because he's a former U.S. Marine, I think. Sorry if I'm wrong, Brian. Um but, you know, what he always makes the point of is all these weapons have gone into Ukraine. Well, one thing, they're not staying in Iran. Many of them in Ukraine, sorry. Many of them are being sold off on the dark web and are ending up in, you know, Western Sahara and even in Syria, etc. Um, <clears throat> but the thing is, all of these weapons coming in, you can't train the Ukrainians in a very short time to use them correctly. So either that means there are NATO member state soldiers and military using these weapons against Russia, right. or it means these weapons are going to get destroyed and misused right? because the Ukrainians don't really know how to use them. I think it's both. I th- yeah. I've already seen examples of the UK just recently. It was even on a corporate kind of like one of those little... I forget what platform it was, but they put a little mean video saying, you know, UK is here training with the Ukrainian troops on the ground, <laughs> like it's a promotion, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, we know that. I mean, they pretend, yeah. meanwhile, they're not involved in the war, though. You know, it, it's a childish game. But well, obviously- and also, there's all these mercenary brigades. I mean, you know, there's, yeah. there's Black- thousands of them. And many of them, of course, have gone from um, <clears throat> fighting alongside the Kurdish Contras to straight to Ukraine, which is kind of an interesting. Um, ideology question mark over it. And I've actually yeah. spoken to Matt Errett, who you know about this, because mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell? Like, how can they go and fight for a group that they would extol as being um, democratic, right. women's rights, and so on, and then go and fight with the Nazis in Ukraine? <laughs> like, how does that ideology line up? I, right. I'm not quite understanding this. And they do do it for an ideology. You know, they they or at least they promote themselves as being ideologically yeah. driven. Well, I, th- 
I think it's an overlap kind of like what we saw with the, with, with, you know, the moderate rebels discussion or any of these groupings <laughs> that like, I mean, I've even seen some of these Saudi uh, uh, authority figures have spoken out over the time. I think even MBS himself said this, that there was a level of, you know, look, I think it's pretty obvious by now. I mean, just take a look at the, the Al Qaeda documentary series by James Corbett to realize that this is a manufactured thing. Right. And mm. that there are people that have no interest or care or, 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 you know, about the religious aspect, but there are people underneath them that maybe even understand that what the game being played that do. And then those beneath them that have no idea they're being used that believe they're actually fighting for the, what they believe they're fighting for. So I, it's yeah. an overlap, I think. And I think it's the same game being played here where there are people mm. that are abusing this, this, these zealots, these people that are like aggressively invested in some ideology and willing to kill people for it. Yeah. And they're willing to use that over them. I just, my opinion, but you know, I, I don't know what degree that is the difference, but mm. I think there's part of both personally. Well, I think that's an important point that you touched on is, um, you know, again, we're in this paradigm of we're defending the Ukrainian people. No, you're not. Yeah. You know, NATO is sending the Ukrainian people to their death in order to to weaken and destabilize Russia. That's it. Right. They're weaponizing no. the Ukrainians. They don't it's, give a shit if Ukrainians get killed in this war at all. <laughs> it's basically on the record. I mean, you've got yeah. articles by foreign policy citing a CIA, you know, former yeah. CIA agent who's basically laying out what we were going to do. Like on, it was February 24th. Right. Yeah. Like just exactly what the plan. And, and it's clear that this has been a planned agenda and it's in documentation. You can look through their own discussion. Yeah, I look at the Rand yes. papers from 2019. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's there in black and white. Exactly what they're doing now. Yeah. 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 So it's just so. So my, my mm. biggest concern is that is that this go takes a, a step where something gets done. And I honestly take it to this full conclusion that something gets done possibly by one of these entities that doesn't feel they're being backed up enough by the outside forces and try like we've talked about in Syria where they try to force their hand by executing some chemical attack that nobody then pointed at, you know, so it's clear they were yeah. trying to get them to take the bait. So is that what happened with Poland? Let's say, you know, is that what will happen next? That's all I'm concerned about and what Russia yeah. then feels like it's forced to do. You know? Oh, yeah. And there's potential of a nuclear false flag. You know, exactly. That, that is exactly. without a doubt the biggest fear for Russia also. I mean, I speak right. to enough Russian officials here. That is their biggest fear hmm. is is that some idiot is going to kind of, you know, whether Zelensky suddenly says, oh, I need more funding. You know, where's the funding going? Of, like, of course, again, just like Syria, there's no accountability. There's no transparency. Right. You know, billions yeah. of taxpayer funds is going into Ukraine. What's happening with it? Right. And if you and if you point that out, you're, you don't love freedom or, you know, some oh. childish argument that, you know, that's really what it <laughs> yeah. comes down to. And, you know, and yeah. they're just willing to attack anybody that, that you know, it, it's amazing. And this is why I'm beginning to think that most people are, are to some degree kind of feeling this. Have we been here before? You know, like looking at Iraq and these same things. It's like, yeah. well, wait, wait a minute. Weren't these these like irrational calls for support before ended up being the, you know, oh, look at all, look at what all happened to Iraq. Look at all where the weapons went. It's the same game, you know? And so I just think I'm hopeful at the very least that people are it, more skeptical today than I think we've seen in the past. And that maybe that will yeah. change the way this goes. I'm hopeful at the very least. I think also that's why you're seeing um, the desperation, like for example, declaring um, Russia a terrorist state, but also, um, there's legislation coming in, like the online harms bill in the yeah. UK, um, uh, the EU disinformation bill. I can't remember what it's actually called, but where yeah. they are designating anyone basically um, who challenges the official narrative as being an information terrorist or even a war criminal. Yeah, it's right? incredible. Hey, yeah. um, so, so that's where we're heading on this. Right. You know? Yeah.
I completely agree. And it's a very <laughs> alarming step that we can see that, you know, which, by the way, fundamentally undermines, contradicts what we pretend we believe in these countries. Exactly. I mean, it's just it's yeah. staggering to pretend that we've got free speech yet. This is <laughs> happening. You know, I mean, it's just it's it, it, these things are counter counterintuitive at the very least. Well, not while we've got Julian Assange in, in prison and a Marat Verrett's kill list, you know, against exactly. foreign journalists and sanctions against independent observers. I mean, <laughs> all right, this is it. Um, yeah. I think they're exposing themselves for what they possibly yeah. always have been, you know, or at the yeah, very least, or exactly. partly, and they've just exposed going forward the kind of people that rise to the top of these power structures. You know, it's however mm-hmm. you look at it. So I'm, you know, I'm glad we, you know, that we can still have these conversations today, whether or not they're being <laughs> suppressed everywhere they go out. But at the moment, we're still able to have them. So we need to continue yeah. to put this out in front of people, have these conversations and recognize that, I mean, we probably just barely skimmed the surface of all the crazy mm-hmm. important things that are happening that aren't being focused on today. So thank you for continuing yeah. to work. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sorry if I kind of jumped around, but it's the thing is everything is so connected anyway. Yes. It's very hard to kind of, um, you know, because we should talk again about what's happening in Israel as well, because that's very connected. Netanyahu's re-election is very connected to uh, Ukraine and the Zionist influence on the Nazis there or the collaboration with the Nazis. So that's also kind of an interesting factor that's coming into play now. It really is. <laughs> I, I, I referenced an article in 2018 where, where groups inside of Israel were petitioning the government. They're like, why are you funding Nazis, in, in the, the, specifically the Azov Battalion? It's just so funny how that can be on the record. And it's just today, you know, same, same story. But, but yeah, yeah. We, let's, let's, just, let's just connect next week. Let's, let's talk yeah. afterwards at a date. Okay. Let's do it again. I think it's so important to keep these conversations going. And I, you know, I agree. It's, I, you and I see that the same way. There, it's, it's almost impossible not to see how all of these things, I mean, all of them have overlaps and connections. And maybe that's because we see it, or maybe that's because there's something larger they're driving towards. All I'm asking is people out there ask that question, you know? So mm-hmm. thank you for being here. And I'm looking forward to talking with you next week, hopefully. So mm-hmm. thanks You're again. welcome, Ryan. Thanks. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.